The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Barron's Live. This is today we're doing the Market Watch edition. Uh, I'm Lucas Halpert. I'm the financial crime reporter here at Market Watch. Uh, today on Barron's Live, we're going to be looking at the darker side of money. Um, this is where we examine the seamy underbelly of finance. We look at the world of scams, money laundering, financial crime. Uh, I'm joined today by Ray Dukey, the Managing Director of Investigations and Risk Advisory for K2 Integrity. Uh, Ray's an expert in global regulatory and compliance frameworks, and he advises financial institutions how to better buttress their systems against fraudsters and criminal actors and how to keep abreast with the ever-changing world of financial regulations. Ray, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you, uh, Lucas. It's truly a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. Look, 2021, let's just get right into it. 2021 was a, a really interesting year on a, a multitude of levels, let's say, but particularly in the world of financial fraud, I write a ton of stories about various scams. Um, maybe we could start, just, can you just give us an overview of what the finance world was grappling with last year and where this is all going in 2022? Sure. Uh, so, a uh, great question. I think, from from my perspective, I think, you know, the finance world was dealing with with a lot of COVID type uh, frauds, and I, I do believe that some of those were fairly significant. Um, from from my pr- perspective, you know, in in twenty one, you'll see some of the in twenty two, you'll see some of the remnants of, of those COVID related frauds, as congressional subcommittees uh, deal with the post mortem on on what happened to the EIDL and the PPP funds, um, my sense is that you'll get some of the financial institutions will be called in to provide testimony or other information. As the FBI, the Treasury, um, Homeland Security investigations you know, continue their the tail end of their investigations, again, I think you'll, you'll, you'll see a lot of cooperation between government and, and those investigators. I think also uh, some of the things that I think are are still pending, um, and we've seen a lot last year, is payments-related fraud. Um, JP Morgan Chase released their report uh, on payments fraud, and I think of the 75% of the respondents that they spoke to had some sort of payments-related fraud scheme that they were dealing with. Business email compromise continued to top the list, followed by check fraud and, and uh, lost or stolen cards and, and um, account takeover are the sort of three big buckets. Um, on the business email compromise, I, I still see a lot of organizations struggling with that. These are the emails that apparently come from uh, your CEO demanding that you, you make a, a large wire transfer to an entity or organization. Um, you see fraudsters impersonating uh, vendors um, and the like. So I do think that we'll see a lot of those coming through. Uh, you know, those are some of the things I saw in, in 21 that that may still be around in 22 as well. Um, maybe walk us through a little bit, you know, how PPP and e, e, EIDL uh, fraud, how it happened, you know, exactly. Because I know that, you know, a lot of this was from what I've seen is that, 
you know, the government wanted to get the money out there as quickly as possible. And, you know, they just kind of, you know, they were going to, the banks sort of followed suit with that, like processing these things quickly. There wasn't a lot of checks. Now, now they are, they're looking back. Maybe walk us through like a little bit about how that, that played out from, you know, from the bank's perspective, I suppose. Sure. Um, I think a lot of the, the banks and, and some uh, non-banks were, were dealing with a tremendous amount of uh, you know, applications for these loans um, from some from truly individuals that really need the funds, businesses that need the funds. And, and then you had a, a population of uh, fraud rings and fraudsters that were taking advantage of the system. I think in, in some cases, we see some of the fintechs were processing some of these loans in a matter of seconds. Mm. And, and I think that's where, you know, if you ask yourself the question, how is it possible that anyone could do any type of ver- verification, much less diligence on some of these applications within seconds? I think it's virtually impossible. And so as a result, you saw a lot of breakdown in, 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 in uh, the control system or control structure. I also think that FIs dealing with this influx of, of uh, loans, they're taking this risk-based approach. I think naturally some, some things will fall through the cracks just, just given the volume. And so as a result, you're seeing now the investigations that are pouring in where you have individuals who don't have a true business or a true need. They're receiving these funds and they're spending it on, you know, I was talking to a Homeland Security investigation, uh, lead investigator Ray Villanueva the other day. And he said they're finding things that people are buying mansions, yachts, uh, fancy Lamborghinis and and, and the like with, with the funds. And so. I do think that it's it's a it's a tragedy, and and I feel that the government is continuing those investigations into 2022 and beyond. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've written a lot of stories about the guys buying Lamborghinis. It seemed a very popular item. So it was always a Lamborghini for some reason. This is not Maserati, not Bentley. Always Lamborghinis. But those are the ones that they seem to catch. Obviously, when somebody's gone and just you know taken millions and spent it, you know, on ridiculous things. But I assume there are probably a lot of cases where somebody didn't take you know two point five million dollars in a PPP loan, but maybe took like forty five thousand. They're probably not going to catch those folks. I mean, it's, there's only so much investigation you can do. I would assume, right? I, I do believe so. I think you know, from again, from talking to to, to colleagues in, in law enforcement. I think what we're seeing is that they're focusing on some of the larger rings. So where you have organizations that have, you know, uh, enlisted hundreds or thousands of, of people or mules to help them uh, with these schemes and in applying for the loans, uh, in going to the bank and taking the money out, you're seeing a lot of those. And so those are the cases I think will be of focus. Um, there, there's some there's some of these frauds that that will go uncovered. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, in our conversations, you know, not on this format, but, you know, you've talked about this year, you know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, new round of government spending that's coming and uh, with the infrastructure bill. And if, you know, any remnant of the Build Back Better bill ever passes, you know, wh- what is that going to mean for the world of fraud? <laughs> yeah, another, another great question. My, my sense is that depending on you know, I, let me start by saying this. Fraudsters will, will, they're like bank robbers, right? They will naturally gravitate to where the money's at. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that you have government spending in infrastructure type projects, I think that's, that's potentially an area that could be ripe for fraud. 
Um, when you have this large expenditures of government funds into capital uh, infrastructure projects, couple that with you have a shortage of material, shortage of labor, um, that, that may be an environment that, that's ripe for construction fraud. Mm-hmm. And so the things you would see there are, you know, false billing, you know, excessive change orders, uh, product substitution. Those are things that I see could, could uh, come to light in, in that scenario. I think where you have uh, government funds that are going into um, re- renewable energy sources or, or credits uh, for organizations that, that uh, prove to uh, net zero carbon emissions, you will see uh, potentially some, some instances of financial reporting fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, there's a report out that came out last year where uh, an EV uh, maker had uh, falsified a ton of information in their in their filings and public releases in order to boost their stock price. I think those are the types of things that we could potentially see coming up a lot more. Um, and that's sort of like on the on the government, uh, you know, the, the the new programs. I think there are some programs that you know have been ongoing uh, as a result of the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. right? For example. We see a lot of states that are throwing uh, tons of millions of dollars towards these treatment centers and facilities. Um, I think that's, you know, there, there, there were cases that were reported where there were massive frauds. I recall one in uh, Bell Harbor, Michigan, where two brothers scammed the government over a hundred and some odd million dollars of, of false billings as a result of these, these treatment centers that they, they created that really had no legitimate services. They made up clients. Um, they had, and for those clients that were real, quote unquote real, um, they were actually providing them with with opioid cocktails in order for them to to come back to the treatment center. So they were giving them drugs in a treatment a drug treatment center. And so I think again, fraudsters will, will gravitate to where the money's at yeah. to the extent the government's spending. You know, wherever it, it goes. I think that's where we'll see the the frauds follow or the fraudsters follow. Um, I want to remind our, our listeners that uh, you know we have uh, you can you can lodge questions if you like. Um, you know, uh, please. We, at the end, we're going to put aside some time to answer your questions. So if you have any, please you know send them in, and we'll look at them in a bit. Um, I wanted to ask you another question on that front. Um, you know, when you mentioned the opioid crisis, uh, you know, it's something I've detected. There seems to be a spate of, uh, uh, of prosecutions into telemedicine and Medicare and Medicaid fraud that surrounds that. Um, it seems pretty, you know, organized and broad based. I don't know if you've been detecting any of that and what you're working on or, you know, what are some patterns that may be emerging there? Yeah, in, in that in that case, I think it's all coming down to what, what we traditionally uh, call in, in the uh, investigation space, these medical mills, hmm. right? And so to the extent that there are dollars, large sums of dollars that are available out in, in, uh, in, the, in, in the marketplace, in the industry, you will see these fraud rings try to manipulate the, the, the requirements, the strategy around obtaining those funds. And so you have these mills where people are being forced into to claiming that they need treatment and they're boosting the billings for doctors or organizations um, as a result of that. So I think, again, you, you will see more and more of those cases. I haven't worked on any, any of them specifically, but I do believe, again, in line with the theme where the money's at, that's where the fraudsters will go. Um, 
Maybe let's move pivot a little bit towards, you know, government regulations in the financial sector. Obviously, this is something that changes all the time. There are new things going on, you know, new tools of finance, crypto being, you know, a big one, but other things. Um, what, what, where does, what's the landscape looking at, looking like now? Maybe where some of the new developments that may be coming that, uh, you know, financial institutes have to, institutions have to grapple with. Sure. Um, so the 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 one obvious one that that you know you turn on the TV, uh, you know any day now you see the situation in in Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I think you know to the extent that there are more sanctions that are come out of that, I, I think the the financial institutions will have to deal with the OFAC sort of regulations and the changes on the sanctions front, along with any other sort of uh, country. I think. One of the areas that we're seeing uh, an uptick in activity as well is on the, the CFIUS uh, regulations where, you know, community, the Committee on Foreign Investments into U.S. companies, where um, foreign investors taking ownership interest in U.S. companies that may potentially have uh, protected data or IP that's considered protected data um, and, and may be subject to the national security uh, requirements. And so you see that the government is imposing uh, sort of strict requirements in those companies to to have systems and controls in place to protect that data. I think we're seeing an uptick in sort of those those uh, those those agreements, national security agreements with, with organizations. Um, on the crypto front, I, you know, I that will continue to be a challenge for for the market, for FIs, for for all of us, for that matter, uh, going forward. While there aren't any specific regulations that 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 uh, are, are you know current um, what my sense is that from from seeing how the government dealt with you know the colonial pipeline issue um, you know in in June of I think it was June of 21 where you know the, the ransomware attacks uh, there was about four million dollars that was paid the government was able to recover about 2.3 million of that uh, through through um, task force mm-hmm. uh i think that to me um it's a signal where the government is going because in that case w- what happened was that they don't have any regulations currently with respect to crypto but they were able to use existing regulations right so uh, you know aml uh regulations and and traditional law enforcement tactics to track down um the bad actors in that case, and actually recovered. I think they recovered somewhere around 64 bitcoins, which was worth about 2.3 uh, million dollars at, at the mm-hmm. time. Um, who knows what it's worth today? But at that time, it was worth about 2.3 million. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but they were able to recover that using sort of traditional money laundering uh, regulations and and, t- and and traditional law enforcement tactics to chase down those those bad actors. And so I thought that was a that's a big win for, for the government. Um, I think we should see more of those types of investigations given the formation. I think it's called the uh, uh, NSET, which is a National um, Cryptocurrency Enforcement Task Force or something like that, um, that was formed uh, late in, in 21. I think we'll see a lot of activities from them in, in 2022 as well. Um, one question I have, maybe you can answer this for me. I've always sort of had a hard time wrapping my head around the notion that, you know, crypto and the blockchain is supposed to be this very transparent process. Yet, if I'm a criminal actor, it also allows me great ability to 
kind of hide what I'm doing. I don't, I've always sort of struggled with this. This thing is like these transactions are supposed to be all very clearly recorded and you can kind of track it. Yet, if I'm like, you know, drug dealer trying to like move money around the world and launder it, it seems also like a very effective tool. How does that square exactly? Sure. Um, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting space and, and world. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of transformation. The, the, yes, there is a ledger. Um, the, the issue with, not the issue, but the, the, you know, the, the ledger has an encryption key, right? Mm -hmm. And so in order for you to access the ledger, you need that encryption key. And so that's one, one sort of issue. And, and that's something that they dealt with in the colonial pipeline case. But then you have beyond, beyond sort of the, you know, these, these platforms like, like Coinbase and others, uh, that have, they're housing these Bitcoins and, and, and cryptocurrency, they have the ledger. What happened with the criminals? What's happening is that when it goes from, say, uh, you know, Coinbase to one of these quote unquote tumblers or mixers type organization, it, it sort of the coins become a bit more fungible and untraceable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's harder for for you to trace it after that. So there's some some question. And, and I think the government is, is again, looking at this to, to the extent that these mixers and tumbler type businesses are serving in the capacity of a money launderer right Seems like that's all it would be right i mean what right, would be exactly. the legitimate well, purpose for doing this like, <laughs> well well you know some you know there's some argument that you know if you in cash is it's truly it's untraceable right, right. because it, so you want to have that same level of protection here in a different currency and so, so there's some argument you know philosophical argument i would say but but the way the government is treating this is that if if these these actors are using it in in the capacity of money laundering, right? They're using these mixing and tumbling services in the capacity of money laundering, then you know then it, it becomes illegal, and and so that's again they're using traditional on the books regulations to prosecute these criminals. But sure. the idea is that if you move the money, move the the bitcoins around you know, fast and into different accounts, it becomes harder to trace them. And so that coupled with the fact that you have, um, you know, this uh, encryption key, uh, that that's sort of a, a level of protection, if you will, for, for some of the fraudsters. But, you know, it, it, as proven in the in the uh, colonial pipeline case, the government was able to actually get access to that key and then trace the funds. How they did that, that's an interesting question. There's some speculations about what they did and how they got it but i don't know that they will tell us i'm sure they want to keep that close to the vest if they can use it again without anybody knowing absolutely um maybe we talk a little bit about technology now um you know the banking world is obviously always trying to you know upgrade their systems be as you know secure against fraud and various you know efforts at malfeasance as possible you know what are some of the advances in the last couple of years and going forward that you know banks and financial institutions are looking at to stay ahead of the curve here sure um you see a lot around surveillance programs um there there are advances in technology on that front uh in terms of uh you know uh, the monitoring of transactions through a system i think there's some new and, and neat tools that are out there um i think you see a lot of uh you know customer uh, authentication or transaction validation type uh you know tools that are that are out in the marketplace i will tell you that um some of the, the you know 
organizations that take advantage of this um, are, are, you know, stay ahead of, of the curve, are, are doing better. I would say there, there are still some of my clients that, that I talk to um, that are struggling with this, right? It's, if you think about infrastructures that have been set up, you know, many, many years ago and are in existence today, um, and it would be very difficult for those organizations to update, upgrade, uh, or even wholesale, you know, uh, implement new systems. It's it's a tremendous undertaking. And so, what I'm seeing is that a lot of our our, our organizations they're they're trying to add new features, and that's where you know we tend to to provide some assistance, talking to them about what you could do in incremental bits and pieces of changes to help address some of the the modern day risk around, you know, um, these business email compromise and, and you know, email uh, coupled with ACH and wire frauds, mm-hmm. um, how to tackle those from a from a transaction monitoring perspective, and then also how to tackle those from a, a transaction verification perspective, right? So how do you know that your customer is actually asking for that particular wire transfer or ACH transfer? And so... Those are the areas of customer authentication, uh, transaction monitoring. There are constantly advances in those areas. The, the, the challenge, though, for organizations is how fast do you take that on and, and how much of that do you take on at once? I think that's where we see some of our clients are, are trying to establish a balance, if you will. Um, one question on you know, sort of cybercrime. A, a lot of it, you know, when I've, what I've written about seems to utilize a lot of, you know, methods that are kind of tried and true, you know, it's like, but, you know, test technology changes as regulation changes, as, you know, you get new, new, new uh, areas like crypto that kind of create a, a level of versatility, I, perhaps for people who engage in this. Uh, how is cybercrime changing now? I mean, you, you know, uh, uh, confidence scams are, you know, centuries old, and a lot of them sort of utilize the same underlying methodology, but how is it adapting in the current environment? Well, there, there, there are always some type of new code that's being created, but I would say if you, you put all the codes aside, the, the most successful scams are the ones that, that prey on human nature. Hmm. Um, and from, from my perspective, you know, our, our organization uh create scenarios right where where they try to create a phishing type email or phishing campaign and you know (laughs) being you know in this world for so long i'm i'm sometimes uh susceptible to those emails as well i open them i click on the link and and it's 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 scary because of the fact that, that these fraudsters are preying on human nature and and our organization based those campaigns on actual threats or actual attempts that were made. And you you would you'd be amazed to see some of these things. I'm sure you've seen some yourself, but it's, they take the latest crisis, the fraudsters take the latest crisis, they, they get access to your email and they take the latest crisis that you're dealing with and create a scenario where you think it's legitimate and real mm. and urgent. And because you want to do a good job and you want to, you know, impress your, your, your superiors, <laughs> you tend to take action, you know, right. promptly. And that's where, you know, we're seeing some of the more massive frauds in that, you know, organization in, in the context of M&A, for example, mm. you know, a deal, the, the, the life cycle of a deal is, you know, a matter of weeks in some instances. 
And so if they find out that the deal is ongoing, they would target those finance personnel within those organizations and shoot them an email seemingly coming from the CEO, right, or the CFO and asking for a wire transfer to the law firm, which looks and feels like it's, it's, it has the, the logo. It looks legitimate, right? When you click on the link, it looks like the actual law firm, but it's not. It's the fraudster create a spoofing website and, and boom, in, a, in an instance, they have millions of dollars. Right, sure. Millions, and... you know, it, it's, it's hundreds of millions in some cases. Um, I think now might be a good time to switch to some of our uh, listener questions. Let me look and see what we got here. Um, let's start with uh, we have a question from Bud. He asks, uh, what's the safest and best overall method to optimize investment returns with purchasing Bitcoin? Oh, wow. I don't know if I have that financial advice, but I would say that if you're using, you know, one of the larger uh, type of, you know, exchanges, uh, you know, like a Coinbase, I think those are, you know, you, I would look at security being being one um, in terms of optimizing your return. My sense is divesting in, you know, um, investing in several different, um, uh, you know, Bitcoins, I think it's probably a good strategy, right? So it's right. Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, I don't know, Dogecoin, oh, yeah. how you pronounce that, yeah. but uh, I think you just split <laughs> Yeah, you hedge, hedge your bets. Yeah, that's that. Hedge your bets. I think, um, I think some folks are talking about these NFTs that are coming out now. I don't know. I think my, my kids probably know more about those stuff than, than me. There's always something new. It's, it can make your head spin sometimes. I, I have a hard time keeping, keeping abreast of all the new, new twists and new, 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 new items, new, uh, you know, things out there. So, a uh, question from Fred. Uh, should the fraud investigations focus on recovery from the multi-million dollar and public health medical mills rather than the smaller several thousand dollar frauds? What are the sentences for conviction? Yeah, I think in in uh, in in Medicare and and healthcare fraud has been a there have been stiff fines and penalties in in those cases. I think you know because of Lucas, what you mentioned earlier about the 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 limited resources on the government side, they tend to gravitate to those cases which produce the, the you know, in some cases, you know, large dollars lead to, to greater publicity for the government agency. It also leads to large recovery of funds and asset forfeitures and things like that. And so, you know, it's it, it tends to, to be the focus of the investigators. Um, the smaller type cases, I have seen cases that are prosecuted at the city level, at the state level, that are in small dollars as well. Um, I think the government's view is that, you know, they will go after credible leads and credible investigations when, in, in all cases, unless it's something more pressing and, and larger that they're working on. But I've not seen a case where they, they're turning down cases in this in this area, especially in, in healthcare, Medicare fraud. Okay. Here's a question from Mike. Uh, are there any financial incentives for whistleblowers or regular citizens who uncover fraud? I received a 1099 form for our state's unemployment division. It was a guy I'd never heard of who'd used my address to get $3,700 in benefits. Not much money, but my guess is that's one example of tens of thousands. So yeah, what a, a question on whistleblowers. Sure. Um, so so there are, are programs, I would say that, um, you know, the, the smaller type cases, 
will will not tend to draw the attention of some of these regulators that are uh, you know have whistleblower hotlines. I think what what they will do with that information is they will take it in, they will track it, they will investigate it, incorporate it into larger cases and scams uh, that are happening with with a particular ring. So your example may be affiliated with a ring that's sort of uh, doing this to you know hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and so my sense is in that case, you may not you may not get a reward for your tip, but certainly the government would, uh, you know, definitely use that information um, and, and combine it with other sources. I think for some of the, the larger uh, type frauds that are internal to organizations, those are the ones where you see that the SEC and other uh, agencies tend to have these whistleblower programs where they're providing incentive for individuals who blow the whistle on you know corporate leaders and the like so that for these larger type fraud schemes it's also in you know a key tam uh, program in, in the medicaid fraud area that's been around for for years and so that that whistleblower program you know could be depending on you know what it leads to it, you know it, it could lead to hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars for for a whistleblower as well but again, it all depends on the on the size of it, and you know if that information is leading to a much larger scam or or, or case. I think we may have time for maybe one more. Let's try this one from uh, Steve. Have you heard of any fraudulent activities impacting individual brokerage accounts at places like E-Trade? And if a fraudulent activity happens, are consumers protected to the full extent of the fraud? He's asking. He says he doesn't know if brokerage accounts are protected like bank accounts. Yeah, I think there there are there are protections. The brokerage firms will will work with you to help recover the funds. They will, you know, in, in I think it, it's some of the, some of them are subject to the FDIC rules as well, uh, in terms of uh, protection for consumers. I, you know, I don't know how what those amounts are off the top of my head, but my sense is that if there are frauds, the, the firms will work with you to help recover those funds uh, to protect your account. Um, and the like. So we've seen cases where they they take those matters very seriously, and and they they help they help in in sort of recovery of the funds. And 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 then depending on the size of it, law enforcement may be engaged as well, and they can they have sort of more uh, tools available to them to help with the recovery. Uh, maybe we'll do one last question from Lee. Uh, as a concerned listener, what can the normal citizen like me do to help to make the government more careful or precise in the way that it distributes credit, funds, et cetera? Is there a way to cut down the fraud and misconduct given the realistic limits on how government operates? Wow, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, and, and I don't know if I have a precise answer to it. Um, that That is a, um, it's a loaded question. I, I think, you know, my sense is there are watchdog groups, watchdog agencies that have a whole lot of say power more than the, the individual. Um, depending on on the the you know the agency or the issue at hand, uh, my sense is that you know obviously anyone could file a complaint, but where you may tend to get leverage is where you bring that complaint to say an advocacy group or organization that's their sole purpose right for transparency in government etc you may have a better chance of your 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 individual voice being part of a larger voice affecting change for uh, for that organization or entity i'm uh, being told we may we can go a couple minutes longer we have a couple sure. more questions here um 
specifically from Fred, you know, to what extent will personal privacy be compromised to enable customer verification? I guess that's following through with some of the technological uh, uh, things you were discussing that the banks are looking at to do. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if you, um, you know, there are regulations in place that say, if you want to open an account, you got to provide this information. So it's upon you as an individual to say whether or not you want to provide that information. If you don't provide it, you're not going to have an account. And so it's it's things like driver's license. It's it's um, at a minimum, right? It's one mm-hmm. form of ID that, that banks are required to, to uh, obtain from an account holder um, to validate their identity. Um, so that's on a, on a, say, account opening. On a transaction basis, um, what, what some of the, the banks are doing is they're, they're doing sort of uh, transaction verification. And that's being done through sort of a, a key fob or, or, or something to that effect where you're asked to put in your PIN and ID, which is it's not as um, identifiable um, in that instance. It's, it's a code, authentication code that's plugged into the system. So it's not necessarily tied back to, to user. It's, it's just a, um, you know, a key. And, and so there are some, that to me is the way to go, um, as opposed to, you know, some organization may pick up the phone and call, do customer callbacks and things like that. I think, you know, I would, I would, my preference would be to the extent that the organizations can leverage technology and use, use this you know, key fob systems um, uh, or like RSID and things like RFID and RS, you know, RSA, I should <laughs> using big RSA tokens right. um, to confirm that the, val- the validity of the transaction, I think that's where you could have that protection because the RSA is not necessarily tied to a name or, or identifiable information. It's a code. Got you. Um, I think we've got one last question here from George. Um, so sort of multi-part, but given the wide diversity of regulatory entities charged with investigating fraud, can't fraudsters easily fall through the cracks or fly under the radar? Should there be a central agency perhaps charged with uncovering and investigating all of this? And what can citizens reasonably expect from government agencies to you know, be able to do to rectify fraud? Yeah, so I, the, the answer to that, it depends. I, I think, you know, this... Um, when, when an issue becomes large enough, right, like, like cryptocurrency, and it becomes per- pervasive enough where it's impacting, you know, critical infrastructure, the government will, will tend to create these task force, which, which is multi-agency. So in, in the case of, you know, that colonial pipeline, Case, you know, the, the I think all of the alphabet agencies were in, <laughs> were involved in that, you know, um, and so you, you have that there. In the case of you know regulation I mentioned earlier, the CFIUS regulations for foreign investments, you know, working on on one of those cases in particular, we had representation from the the, the, par, the Department of Justice, National Security, um, FBI, uh, Treasury. You know, there were multi-agency. Um, what they call CFIUS monitoring agencies that were involved. Again, when it's when it's critical things, critical important things for the country, you tend to see the government collaborating more and focusing on those things. Yes, you know, individual agencies, you know, unemployment fraud, for example, the Department of Labor, you know, they, they they're tremendously overwhelmed. But because it became such an issue, 
to a whole bunch of other agencies that are involved in that now, including you know, Homeland Security, mm. you know, are looking at, at unemployment fraud because what's happening is they're using the financial institutions to launder those funds. And that's where you have, now it becomes a money laundering issue. Then you, you, you know, you, it's large enough that the Department of Labor is getting some, some help from some of these other agencies. I guess it's also, you know, worth noting that usually with uh, uh, the, that regulation and, and laws, usually at least 10 years behind tech technology. I mean, it's, uh, it takes a long time for the wheels of government to catch up where, you know, things that go on in the, in the cyber world, you know, change month to month. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting to see. Um, I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Ray, for joining us. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. Um, please join Barron Live uh, next Monday. Uh, Barron's Senior Ma Managing Editor, Lauren Rubin, will speak with Deputy Editor Ben Levinson and Jonathan Waghorn, the Portfolio Manager of Guinness Atkinson Asset Management. And they're going to discuss the outlook for global energy markets. Thank you all for listening. Stay well. Have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.